think it's just trying to shine a light on those communities that have been looked over, that have been said it's too expensive to get to you. I'm not blaming. This is not anybody's fault, Press. I'm not blaming it. But like the reality, it is expensive. It is hard. It is challenging. But those communities, I mean, somebody shouldn't be penalized for being born into a place. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on this episode, we unravel the transformative journey of Eastern Kentucky. A region that once thrived as a coal-producing hub, it now grapples with the effects of the coal industry's decline. On this episode, we delve into the impact of the coal industry decline, uncover staggering statistics, and learn about the creation of the organization shaping our Appalachian region, or SOAR. This conversation takes you on a journey through SOAR's blueprint for Appalachia, addressing health challenges, community initiatives, digital equity and inclusion, all while envisioning the future of Eastern Kentucky. Join us for an exploration of the region's past, present, and the road to a flourishing socioeconomic future on this episode of The Green Hour. Think about the town you live in, or the region. What industries dominate the area? For me, it's the flooring industry. I grew up in Dalton, Georgia, which has been known as the carpet capital of the world. A big manufacturing town that employs a fair amount of the area's population. Now think about your town, the industry, and the amount of people that work there. What if that industry was shut down and those people were not given another means of employment? How would that affect your community, or better yet, region as a whole? What I just described is what happened in Eastern Kentucky with the coal industry. The economic downturn of the coal industry not only led to significant job losses, but also triggered broader challenges, including population outmigration and health disparities in the region. Shaping our Appalachian region, known as SOAR, was born from the fallout of the coal industry. Their mission today is to solve the deep-seated issue of population retention and growth in Eastern Kentucky. SOAR serves 54 counties in Eastern Kentucky and works to provide broadband connectivity, health improvements, industrial development, and regional food systems. In this episode of The Green Hour, we're joined by Colby Hall, the executive director of SOAR. A native of Eastern Kentucky, Colby studied at the University of Kentucky and worked in sustainability at Rubicon Technologies. Colby has always had a heart for service and he attributes it to growing up in Eastern Kentucky and all of the people that surrounded him. In sustainability, you often hear about the environmental metrics, or the E of ESG. As you'll hear in this episode, Colby highlights the crucial S in ESG, which stands for social. He underscores SOAR's mission to create meaningful opportunities for overlooked communities in the region. He envisions a future where individuals are no longer penalized for being born into an area and shows how SOAR is moving mountains to make this happen. So Colby, I'll say 
from doing some research on you, one thing sticks out. One word I'd say sticks out, and it's service. It seems like in all of your experiences throughout your life have put service first. Um, you have been someone that really wants to get involved and has gotten involved in your community in a variety of different ways. So I just want to start off this this um, conversation on your background um, and how you got to the place you are today leading, um, shaping our Appalachian region. So could you give us a brief background and how you got to where you are today? You know, came from a pretty humble uh, upbringing in Somerset, Kentucky, a, a small town in, I would say, the western part of the eastern part of the state of, um, of, of, of Kentucky. Um, grew up with a, a pretty traditional upbringing, had, had two brothers, a very supportive mom and dad, a, a self-made dad, a dad that um, neither one of my parents went to college. So they were just, uh, you know, very blue collar, enterprising. My dad is the definition of a small business owner or an entrepreneur that um, just worked extremely hard to get to where he was. So, you know, I feel like the service part that you that you mentioned, it's very kind of you to say, um, you know, was imprinted into me very early on from both of my parents in, in different ways. My dad is one of those guys that um, you never know how much he's given because he always does it anonymously, right? But nobody questions that he has a, a big heart and that um, he, he he is very um, aware of the blessings that he's received in this life. And he always does it in a quiet way, which to me is the the whole point of service to begin with, right? It's not about making it out about yourself. It's about doing the right thing and because that's just the right thing to do, right? And uh, from a young age, my mom um, always talked about, you know, the golden rule, right? Not to not to be the cliche, but it's, gosh, it's amazing how we can just steer away from that one simple ethic. I, I'm I'm spiritual. I'm a Christian, so I, I feel like the the golden rule it kind of underpins every part of my fiber and being, and and just doing unto others as as you would have them do unto you. Um, and and really, you know, that's just always what my mom told us growing up that. If we ever had a dilemma or a question, we weren't sure what to do. We just treat other people the way that we want to be treated, right? And so I feel like that's carried with me no matter where I was. But, I, you know, I graduated from a small high school, Preston. And uh, for listeners or for for you, I, I can't speak. Um, I'm not sure how big your school was. I know there's some big schools in, in, in Georgia. But when, when you do pretty well in school, you're, you kind of naturally gravitate towards a couple of career paths. So I, I thought I was going to be a doctor, right? So I came out of high school and was fortunate to have gotten a, a, a pretty great scholarship at, at the University of Kentucky. So went there, um, you know, thought I was going to medical school and until I, you know, started having some doubts as I, as I got it near graduation, or I, I guess maybe not doubts, but, you know, really pressed and dissonance. Like, you know, I feel like I haven't really given anything else a fair shot. I've been so kind of narrow down this one path. Like, is this really what I want? Or is this what, just what I think I want? Right. And about that time I came across, you know, Nate Morris and and I know you know him well at Rubicon. He was really kind of this first, um, you know, I'm biased. I would consider my dad the greatest entrepreneur I've ever known. But, you know, Nate uh, was probably the first maybe large-scale entrepreneur, a guy that was really out there raising money and planted a lot of great vision and and and, and did it, um, you know, from maybe a similar background as me or humble beginnings and really just the, the, the level of hustle and work ethic he showed really stuck with me. And so, you know, formed a friendship with Nate and, and he, he showed me a different way to think about things. So yeah, after I graduated, I spent a year abroad teaching English and working on my Spanish. And when I came back, I reconnected with Nate. He was building out his SMB team at Rubicon. So moved from, uh, moved from Somerset to, to Atlanta, uh, where I was for, uh, you know, between four and five years and, and had a great stint at Rubicon and a few other places. 
um, you know, at the time I was in a, a long distance relationship with my now wife, Lindsay, and uh, we were splitting time. She was finishing up nurse practitioner school in Chicago. I was in Atlanta. So, you know, in, in 2020, it started getting to the point where she was finishing school. We knew we had to be together. Uh, Kentucky's home, man. That's where I was born and raised. Um, my wife, she's originally from north of, of Dayton, Ohio, but she's a UK grad. So, you know, Kentucky was was kind of where we wanted to be. And I saw the SOAR opportunity pop up and, you know, biology major with the sales background. I mean, some people are like, what qualifies you for that? I, I tend to not really get too stuck on titles, Preston, to be honest. I think hard work and uh, cu- curiosity and, um, you know, a, 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 I guess a decent amount of intelligence can get you a long way, right? And so I went after the SOAR job and and I, I was really um, excited about it. I felt like it could um, be a position of service that I felt like, I don't know, it just felt right, man. I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, I just feel like the state, there were so many people, the community, I just felt such a, an obligation to go back and to try to make Kentucky a better place, you know, at a, at a high level. And I felt like the SOAR job afforded me the opportunity to do that. So my wife moved back from Chicago. I moved up from from Atlanta. We met in Betsy Lane, Kentucky, in Floyd County. Lived 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 for a year, and um, you know, then moved to Pike County. And so, um, you know, now we're based in in Lexington due to some you know circumstances that changed in this last year. But still, going back and forth between Lexington and Pikeville, and uh, yeah, we're we're really just getting started at SOAR Preston. And twenty twenty three was a big year for us, and. We're starting 2024 with the bang. We've we got some exciting news, you know, actually last night about this big grant opportunity. And yeah, so I just, it's an honor and a privilege to be at SOAR and um, grateful to be there. And uh, yeah, it's been really good. So hopefully that answers your question. I don't mean to get too long-winded. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. And it's, it's cool that we share experiences, not that we've met in person, but we've lived in the same areas. Um, I obviously live live in the Atlanta area now. But I did live in Pike County for two years while I was going to college. Um, so we share those two things. And, and from my point of view, I can say I, I grew up in North Georgia. Um, I went off to school in, in Eastern Kentucky, and then I came back um, to, to the Atlanta area. And there's just something different um, about Eastern Kentucky. And I don't really know how to describe it. Um, I, was, I was actually up in, in Pikeville for a concert, I'd say, I guess, three or four weeks ago. And I took one of my friends with me from, from my hometown. And when I was there, I was just trying to show him everything. Pikeville is a small is a small town, but I was like so excited to just show someone from my life, um, from my upbringing, a place like Pikeville in Eastern Kentucky. And he's like, he's like, dude, I understand that you like it, but is it really that great? And I'm like, you don't understand the people. Um, these people are just blue yeah. collar people. They're the best people that you'll meet. And I've always said that I feel like I'll I'll probably end up back in Eastern Kentucky someday. Just because it it just it feels like home when you're there, um, so I, I just think that's that's cool that we we share the, those two realms of being in a big city, transitioning to a small eastern Kentucky um, town. I can tell you this, Preston. I you know while I was really sad, I love my time in Atlanta. Big Atlanta fan. I miss my my kickball team. I miss the church that I I, I attended. Um, but overall, I'm very very glad to be back in Kentucky. I was glad to to make the move to, 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 to Eastern Kentucky. And, uh, to your point, everybody describes it in a little bit of a different way. I've, I've heard some people summing up. There's just something about being inside those mountains and what it does to you. And I think it, it's, it's a spiritual feeling. It's, it's a little mystical, not to get too like weird, to be honest, but people feel it when you're, when you're, when you're there. So to hear you describe it that way, and that's the impact that it's had on you. Yeah, it definitely resonates because I hear that from so many other people. 
um, to like you that, that share that, um, that share some of those feelings. So, so well said. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I took that, that friend I was talking about up to the cut through, um, overlook. Yeah. And I'm, ex- I'm describing it to him. And, and by the way, I learned about that. And I think it was the, um, the speedway gas station in town <laughs> because it's, it's on a wall and it talks about it. I remember that one day I was in that gas station, like, what in the world? How did I not know about this? This is wild. But this cut through project, I think I've probably talked about it on the on the podcast before. It was the second largest uh, civil engineering project in the history of the United States, only behind the, the Panama Canal. And so I'm just ecstatic telling my friend about this, like walking him up to it. And I'm like, like showing him like how, how this whole project happened. And he's just like, dude, it's just, it's just mountains and it's just a city down there. But I was like, but look at what they did. Yeah. Crazy in, in a place like Eastern Kentucky, um, where these roads are like they are, like it, it's kind of hard to, to think about them doing that cut through project. Um, so I don't know if he, if he shared the same enthusiasm that I had for it, but. Well, it, 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 your appreciate it's hard to have that full appreciation for it, Preston. I mean, if you could somehow transport back into the 70s and the 80s and the 60s and pre-cut through in Pike 1, I wasn't there, nor did I really have family there. But I, I feel like, I mean, look at last last summer. Was it last summer? Yeah, last summer, the summer before this summer, the floods, the devastating floods that hit in eastern Kentucky. And, you know, because of some of that visionary leadership of Mayor Hambly, Right, that that ultimately was responsible for getting the cut through project, you know, done. Um, you know, Pikeville really never has to worry about flooding. It was located right along the river, just like some other communities in eastern Kentucky. And he saw that. He saw the vision. He had the vision to say, like, this is gonna hold our community back. This is a something, a phenomenon that's held Appalachia back in general, just the cycles of flooding and losing everything. But this is something that's gonna hold this city's progress back. And the story behind how he did it, right, and how he formed a relationship with Senator Dirksen from Illinois, who now is the the, the namesake of a Senate office building and, and got the funding, this massive amount of funding for a small rural town, you know, in eastern Kentucky to do it. I mean, it really is fascinating. But, you know, I, could, I can understand your friend maybe not seeing it all up there, and especially when you can't see it. But if you would have had a little more time with him to set the context, I think he would have um, maybe grown to to get it a little bit, a little bit more, but you just probably just didn't have enough time. Right. Right. Uh, and the, the last point I'll make on your background, um, is, you know, Nate Morris, you, you, you spoke on Nate Morris, Nate Morris. I've spoken on him on several episodes too. And, and I actually lead a, lead a workshop at, um, at my job with our sales team where we're, I'm basically, it's called leveraging sustainability where we're, you know, teaching the salespeople, not teaching them, but trying to, trying to unlock their sustainability story. You know, when did sustainability start for you? What was that moment? Um, how can you connect that to our company as a whole sustainability story? You're, you're armed when you can go in and do presentations. But I always tell the story about I heard Nate Morris speak at University of Pikeville's undergraduate commencement ceremony. I mean, he's the keynote speaker, and he talked about waste um, in a way that I'd never heard of anyone speak on waste before. Um, he's, he's, I think he said, waste is not something to be ignored. Waste is an opportunity for those who see it. Um, and then after that, that kind of got me into sustainability. It's kind of wild that that one that one um, presentation, that one speech, kind of led me into the career path I'm in now. And obviously, us talking today, it sounds like he had a similar impact on your life. He's the embodiment of Eastern Kentucky, I would say. He's a great entrepreneur and someone that that loves Kentucky. 
more than anyone that more more than some of the anybody I've ever met. Yeah, well, he's been really good to me, Preston, and I'm, I'm not surprised that he's had a positive impact on you. And he gives his time freely. He's a very busy guy, but anytime you reach out, he always texts you back. And and um, you know, the little stuff like that. I mean, to me, that that tells you all you need to know about a person, right? And so, you know, his family originally hails from Morgan County, uh, which is uh, kind of in it, deep, you know, the heart of of, of Eastern Ken- Kentucky is the the home of the Sorghum Festival there in, in, in West West Liberty. But um, so his family is from Eastern Kentucky. Uh, we, we definitely claim him. And um, he is, uh, you know, a captivating person, right? When you meet somebody with that energy and that vision, you know, he gets you fired up. He gets you, it's like one of the good coaches that used to have that will, you know, want to, you know, run through a wall. And, um, you know, and a guy like him in a position where he's building companies and setting culture and fundraising, I mean, you know, it's like anything's possible. And um, so he combines that though with actually, you know, being a genuinely good person and taking care of you. And and so, uh, so yes, yeah, so I've been very appreciative of what he's done for me and the time and attention he's given me and, you know, my early career when he really didn't have to. And, uh, and yeah, he definitely had an, an impact. I don't, you know, can't say out of that first conversation, I knew exactly this is how it was going to work out. Right. But it at least showed that, you know, we talked about this before we started the recording, right? I mean, just because you don't know exactly where it's going to go doesn't mean that like the world's fallen in, right? Like you can take it one day at a time. You can give your best effort. You can work really hard. You can network, take advantage of relationships. And for the most part, everything's going to happen like it's supposed to, right? And to me, that's that's kind of what I took from some of those early conversations and ultimately what pushed me to like just kind of relax a little bit. You know, and uh, and yeah, so I've been thankful to Nate for that for sure. Right? Yeah, I feel like sometimes we can we can try to be too much in in control of our life, and sometimes we just gotta let the the dominoes fall in place. Um, but but taking taking that on your background and kind of, kind of pivoting to more the Eastern Kentucky region um, overall, a lot of people know the Eastern Kentucky region as used to be very prominent in, in coal production. A lot, a lot of coal mines, a lot of coal production inside the state, especially on the eastern side. A lot of people know now that these mines are closed. You know, they're not operating. And with, with this closure also comes loss of employment, loss of wages. And there's a lot of direct and indirect effects of the coal industry decline on eastern Kentucky. I read this stat recently that said uh, between 1990 and 2016, there was an 85% coal production decline, which resulted in over $1 billion in total income losses for those formerly employed by the industry. So the question I'd ask you is, you know, what, what are the direct and indirect effects of the coal industry yeah. on Eastern Kentucky? Deep. I mean, we could get in and look at the data. To me, it's like if I have to pick out a couple, I mean, coal employment peaked in Eastern Kentucky. When you look at the data, coal employment peaked actually in the 40s. Because, you know, we just got more efficient, you know, technology improved, mechanization improved, but production peaked in the early 90s, to your point, Preston. So, you know, when you compare where we are today, especially like in our core coal producing counties of the direct producing counties to kind of the high watermarks, I mean, it's a 97, 98% decline overall to, to, to both of those, right? Mm. So, you know, and that doesn't take into account those indirect negative side effects as well. I mean, coal, you know, they would say for every coal job that was lost, it would lead to almost three other jobs being lost because it was a very 
service dependent industry. So you had, um, you know, lawyers, engineers, contractors, heavy equipment operators, uh, you know, think about the retail, think about small businesses, restaurants. I mean, it was just kind of the, the foundational part of Eastern Kentucky's economy that kind of, you know, fed all of its communities. Um, I, you know, I do want to say, Preston, I, I think we have to say, though, even when coal was booming, you know, the, the region has still had, you know, had challenges to overcome. Historically, if you look at some of what we're up against, you know, being a, a, an area of, you know, with pockets of extreme poverty, um, you know, that has been with the region for a long time. So not all of this can be attributed to coal, but definitely the recent decline, you know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, you know, I and mean, there's been over 10,000 jobs. I mean, there's been a lot of jobs lost. So yeah, and it cuts deep because, um, you know, we can talk about this, I'm sure in a little bit with some of the the industries that have started to, to, to fill those gaps, but coal is like part of the identity in Eastern Kentucky. So like, you know, it wasn't just that people lost their jobs, but they lost a sense of who they are and who their families were and what their communities were. And I think that's some of the, what folks from outside the region miss, especially in terms of a sustainability conversation, Preston, is that, you know, whether folks inside the beltway are, are talking about um, how they approach clean energy or energy transition and some of these things, you know, this is, this is, this is like the, the lives of people in the lives of their, of their parents and their grandparents and the great grandparents. This is so intertwined. It would be like taking something that's really, really important to you and just taking it away. I mean, that's how it's kind of viewed by, by, by folks here. So the job loss hurt and then being seen as this was like a personal attack on our way of life. Right. I mean, you could empathize a little bit with why people were, you know, why it was such a scary time. Right. And why people kind of drug a line in the sand and, and felt like that they were being singled out. Right. So, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a huge um, headwind for the region. Right. And ultimately it was the reason that SOAR came into existence. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And, and for those of you, if you drive around Kentucky, if you look on license plates, you'll see um, the tagline, coal keeps the light, coal keeps the lights on. Um, that, that's a big thing around Kentucky um, that, that people show for, because again, like you're saying, Colby, this is something that people are proud of. The coal industry was for generations and generations of families. So, and I've actually talked about this on, on the podcast before. When you had coal being phased out of these communities, um, you had people that were working in these coal mines their whole lives and didn't necessarily have other other skill sets to go into another career. This is what they knew. This is what they had and what they learned. And this is what they thought they were going to work in forever. So when something like that's stripped away and it's not replaced by something to give these people jobs, I see that as a negative and that's to me, a failure um, of of the government, in my opinion, because you can't just eliminate something and then just leave people out to dust. Um, so th- that's one one of the issues that I've had with the whole thing. Obviously, in, in my seat um, with sustainability, I'm for the cleaner energy technologies. Um, but again, if you're going to take something out of a community like coal, let's give people a, another opportunity and another job that they can learn. And that they can actually earn with. Yeah, well, it's it, it's hard, man. And um, yeah, I wouldn't put the blame. I, I will say this: you know, Eastern Kentucky's been very well served by 
uh, its fifth district congressman, you know, Hal Rogers, the dean of the U.S. House. I mean, he's been um, a fighter and an advocate for coal communities for the over 40 years that he's been in office and has brought so much to the region to help with that transition. But, uh, you know, I do think that ultimately people have to realize that, you know, coal's collapse was largely caused by market forces, right? I mean, take take the conversation. We don't even have to include some some federal um, stimulus or uh, incentives for clean energy. I mean, it's just really kind of what like horizontal drilling, all this, the, the natural gas, the, the, the supply of natural gas exploding that really, you know, hurt the competitiveness of coal. Right. And then you, you, you layer on some maybe unfavorable federal regulations with how power plants, what they use to, to produce baseload power, they started shifting to natural gas because it was cheaper. It was cleaner. Um, I mean, it just, it, it, it was, it was a, it was, it was tough for coal to survive you know, in that type of environment. And, um, you know, I'm not certain that anybody could really forecast that, right? I think when you look at what drove the fracking and the horizontal dr- drilling movement, I think, you know, uh, gas prices hit record highs, right? You know, and, and, and that forced us to think more about how do we supply ourselves domestically. And so I- I'm not saying that um, finding natural gas or shale was an unintended consequence, but as they were searching for more domestic sources of oil, they had natural gas and then naturally that quickened this transition from power plants, which is where Eastern Kentucky coal went, right? This is not coal, met coal that's that's going into the process to make steel or anything like that. Our coal was going to power plants to to, to burn for base baseload power. And so, you know, I, it's hard to put blame and it's hard to, to forecast it perfectly. But um, I do think people have recognized it. There's a lot of good people working on it. It's just it's a, it's a big loss to recover from, right? And and has happened relatively, you know, recently. And and so it's just, it's going to take some time. And uh, it hurts when you're in the middle of it, Preston, right? But, you know, in the scheme of things, when you think about the age of our, when you think about time in general, you know, 20 to 30 years or 40 years really isn't that long when you, when you, when you're, when your scale is, you know, looking back historically, but it makes it tough for people that are in that moment and they feel that pain, right? And they feel the negative consequences. So, uh, so yes, I just wanted to add that as well. Yeah, no, no, thank you, thank you for for adding that too. Because to be honest with you, Kobe, I didn't know where um, Eastern Kentucky coal where that went, like what that was used to power. And so, so thank you for for describing yeah. that. Um, and and out of you know out of the decline of the coal industry, sparked a new nonprofit, um, SOAR, shaping our Appalachian region. And this is what you are doing right now as the executive director, really leading this this nonprofit. You know what is what is SOAR? Um, and, and what is, what is the mission? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways I answer that question press, Preston, depending on the context. I think for this conversation, I would say SOAR is an organization that's trying to think about what comes next after coal, right? You know, we, we, we were kind of formed when people kind of came together and started realizing this is not just a cyclical uh, downturn of the industry because they had seen some of those. It's a commodity, right? So commodities go up and down. When when folks, when leaders in the region started realizing, you know, this is something that's here to stay and like it's not coming back, there was a real like a, you know, oh, what do we do now? Right? What's next? I think it's those initial conversations that said we need somebody full time that's thinking about this question. Somebody full time that's bringing people together. Somebody that's full time to break down county and city lines. We've got a lot of counties in Kentucky for your listeners that are unfamiliar, you know, 120 counties, we're 37th in land size. 
but we have the third most counties in the country behind Texas and Georgia, I believe. So it, it creates a lot of circumstances where it makes collaboration and partnership difficult, right? And so, but you need somebody that's thinking about, you know, as the pie shrinks, as, as, as places are losing populations, as resources are flowing out, as public services, I mean, how do we find some scale somewhere, right, for, for, for new ideas? We need somebody full-time thinking about that. And we need somebody full-time, quite frankly, I mean, my opinion is thinking about crazy ideas, right? I mean, you know, I think the region kind of where we are holistically it should be in a position where, you know, we don't have, like, we should play loose and free, right? Like, we're the underdog. Like, we, we, we can try new things. We, can, we, can, we don't have to wait for something to be proven out. Quite frankly, we can't because our, our urgency needs to be through the roof. But we need somebody that kind of thinks about some of those crazy visions and ideas and takes them from people and thinks about what has merit and how do we how do we put those in place. And so that's what I see SOAR's role as, as well as um, not to be cliche, because sometimes I hate when people say be a storyteller, because I'm not sure exactly what that means. But I do think in this case, we have to think about how do we how do we tell the story of Eastern Kentucky, you know, where we've been, where we're going, how do we shape it up in a in a realistic but positive frame? Because Preston, I really don't think the challenges, we, we have real challenges and problems that we have to solve in Eastern Kentucky, but I don't think any of them are like brand new. Other parts of the country deal with these things. There's, there's none that are like specifically unique. Just maybe, maybe the size, maybe the, 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 the penetration of some of these issues, right? And then maybe some of the remote nature that makes um, putting things together like, um, you know, a little bit harder in, in terms of, um, you know, it's it's just a lot easier when you're on a city block and you can reach twenty five thousand people, right? Uh, it makes it a little bit easier when you've got in Pike County fifty five thousand people spread across eight hundred square miles, right? Like it's just hard to you know that that creates challenge. But I I think SOAR is that organization that does a lot of those things. I, I think we we take a lot of different shapes, right? We have a ton of flexibility. I think that's one of the coolest parts about my job is just the variety of topics and issues that we're a part of. So I love that diversity. It's a challenge sometimes because you feel like you're spread thin, but we're, um, what I think the word is we're, we're amorphous, right? Like we can fit where we need to go. We have flexibility. If we need to lead on a grant, we can, if we need to follow, we can, if somebody needs to funnel something through us, you know, we, we, we just have that ability to, 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 to not think about county lines, truly where Eastern Kentucky across our chest and do whatever it takes to get the job done without being seen as being favored to one specific county or one specific place, right? So being that natural mediator. And I think for the task and the job that we have to do moving forward, you've got to have somebody like us that when people aren't sure where to go, right, they come to us because we just have that unique ability to bring people together and to do things because we're not bound the same way and some people are. So I think the context set me up. That's maybe what I would tell you and tell some of your listeners and then happy to get more specific as we talk about some of our specific priority areas as well. Yeah, no, no. And that's, th- thanks, thanks for breaking that down like that. Um, and especially f- from the, from the perspective of the coal industry and then where, where Eastern Kentucky was, where it is now, and then where it's going in the future. Um, that, that's really good to hear. I wrote a couple notes down, um, and, and one thing that just came to mind is in Eastern Kentucky, um, you'll have people that come to college, let's say, in at EKU, um, right? I, I went to EKU first, and then I went to University of Pikeville, both in Eastern Kentucky. You have people that go to the University of Kentucky, 
um, as well as other schools in Eastern Kentucky. And then after they go to school, they leave, they, they migrate away from, from the state, from the region. So I guess from SOAR's perspective, how, how are you working to keep talent inside the region? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Preston, I think about it a couple of different ways. You know, one, I'm excited. We're going to have somebody that's working full time with us in February um, that comes with a very technical economic development background that I think um, pop- looking, taking a deeper look at population and population migration is going to be one of his first projects. So, you know, while we see census figures of, um, you know, overall, the region lost 6% of its population between the last two census cycles. I'm looking forward to actually getting in there and like trying to show like, okay, if 6% represented a hundred thousand people, just, you know, just throwing something out there, like who's in that hundred thousand people, how old are they? You know, where are they going? What do they do? Why did they leave? Like, is there a way that we can get a little more pinpoint? Because, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm assuming brain drain is an issue in Eastern Kentucky, but I've never seen any conclusive data that would, give me some way to compare what we're experiencing compared to other parts of the country. Like it's, 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 it's hard to know exactly how bad it is. I think anecdotally, right. We all have examples of knowing young talent that migrates out, but I mean, that happens everywhere, Preston, to be fair. I mean, you want your young people to go out and experience the world. You want your young people to go and get educated at places. And you, you, you do though want to know that they have a place to come back to and there's opportunities there. So, you know, I feel like when it comes to talent retention and, and counteracting brain drain, you know, along with trying to actually get in there and quantify the amount of brain drain or the amount of, of, of what we have. And is it more in certain parts of the region in certain counties or other places seeing less of that? I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. I think that we have to come to the realization we're not going to be able to force anybody to stay. Everybody makes their own decision. And our our job should be to paint the picture of what opportunities are available here if they're interested in coming. And even if they leave, they should always think about how they can come back and they'll be welcomed with with open arms. But, you know, I don't think necessarily some of those movements are a bad thing. I mean, I boomerang back, right? I mean, you boomerang in a way. I mean, you're you're and you're you're gonna come back one day. Right. So I, I think we're going to continue to see some of that. Um, I just think that, like, you have to show people what's there and and make a sell, man. You've got to sell. You've got to sell it. You, you, you've got to tell people why they matter. You've got to make them feel special. And every, I think, you know, not to get too into, like, the sociology of the generations. And right. But I think as the generations get down, I think you're seeing a shift to. People want more of that intimate experience. They want to feel like they're wanted. They want to feel like they're of service. They want to feel like they're a part of something special. I think by and large, small rural communities can offer that more than big cities. I think, well, I'm not saying it's, 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 per, it's perfectly easy to be connected, Preston, but I think it's easy to get swallowed up in a big city. So I think even if, you, if, if some folks, you know, young people go to school and they move away, well, you're, I was 21 and so now I'm 30. My life looks a lot different. Than when I was 22 and 23, right? So I would, I would, I'd actually counter argument. It'd be interesting to see 10 years from now, right? As this generation has just graduated and they get out in the real world and get some experience, you know, what percentage of folks come back? Because I think there's some natural things happening, but I'll sum it up. I think we got to quantify. I think we have to understand exactly who we're, who we're losing. 
see if we can pinpoint reasons for why, and then see if we can develop tailored strategies around where opportunities are in the region, like healthcare, and then find some way to measure because of this intervention, we were able to retain 5% more than, than what we'd expected. I mean, it's got to almost become a little scientific and mathematical, Preston, if we really want to try to like form some strategies around brain drain. And so in 2024, we're going to start to do some of that work. Hmm. Yeah, I think when we talk about brain drain, um, one way to combat that is through entrepreneurship. Um, when entrepreneurs, like let's say we, we mentioned Nate Morris earlier, you know, brings his company in Kentucky and that brings employment and that brings people inside the state. Um, App Harvest is another great example. Um, even though App Harvest, we, we know that it's it's gone a little bit the other direction recently. But both of these companies were were great for the region because they brought jobs. Um, and these entrepreneurs of both of these companies made Eastern Kentucky a focal point. And, and Nate, Nate had moved Rubicon, like you said, from Atlanta to Lexington, or at least the corporate office. Uh, but this aspect of entrepreneurship um, is very important when, when combating brain drain. And that gets me into, into the point of SOAR's blueprint for Appalachia. Um, and entrepreneurship is one of your key priorities, um, which I think is, is great. I mean, because entrepreneurship drives a lot of different things. Um, so that, that's the first thing I'll ask you on your blueprint. I know there's several things that we'll unpack here, but um, the role that entrepreneurship plays in Eastern Kentucky's prosperity for the future. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's one part of the solution, right? I, I'd wait. I, I'd, I'd probably, well, I don't think there is a silver bullet. I have an opinion on if there is one silver bullet. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit, what that is. But I think innovation entrepreneurship is one of those things, Preston, because again, it's something facilitated by the internet. But as an entrepreneur today, you, you're not limited to your local markets, right? So yeah, I mean, just looking at sheer numbers of potential consumers, you know, Eastern Kentucky, you know, some businesses are, are, are just not going to be possible. It's going to be a lot harder for them to become profitable if they're reliant on foot traffic or if they're relying on a, a base load of, of, of local customers. But I mean, the internet has shown that you can reach a global audience. You can sell globally uh, from anywhere in the region, as long as you have a broadband internet connection. So you know, I think when we think about entrepreneurship, Preston, we think about like, you know, you have like your, your small, small businesses, your traditional small businesses, ones that, you know, don't have hyper growth potential that kind of form the base of your main street businesses or are, are, are just um, uh, types of uh, businesses that provide services locally, which are very, very important. They're very, very important to quality of life in a region, right? They're very, very important to just the overall, you know, vitality of a, of a place. And a lot of those are your, your, your mom and pops or generations of folks that have been in places, you know, for, for, for decades, right? And those are really important. You know, you mentioned ones that we would categor, you know, categorize as more high growth, right? Your traditional startups, when people think about San Francisco and Silicon Valley, you know, a lot more risk. They grow a lot faster. Um, you know, some fail, most fail, I think, depending on the sector and the industry, what's going on and like, that's okay. That happens. I mean, it's not okay, but it happens. Like that's, if you go in different places, you know, there's few of those, of those types of companies that grow and have the economics to make it. So, you know, I think we have to continue to think about how do we serve both of those pots and, and soar, you know, through soar innovation, which is a partnership with um, the Kentucky cabinet for economic development, where the KY innovation help for the Eastern part of the state. You know, we spend most of our time thinking about how to support the hyper growth startups. So 
thinking about, um, you know, a college student like you, right, that we're, we've gotten some grant money to think about next year, somebody that's really interested in entrepreneurship. How can we reach them early as a college student, take their idea, start to flesh it out into a formal business plan, start to think about what an MVP, a minimally, you know, a viable product looks like, start to connect them to resources inside the ecosystem, whether it's mentors, whether it's access to capital, you know, pitch competitions, right? How we, how can we try to give you a leg up and try to surround you with access to programs and, 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 and different things that, um, places, you know, that, that, that you would get in an Austin or that you would get on the coast. And I'm not saying it's going to be a perfect comparison, but how do we somehow level that playing field? And so, you know, we need both of those. I think it's interesting when you go and you look at some of our, what we would consider the tech hubs across the country, you know, like Seattle or Austin. I mean, all their stories started with just like one or two companies like making it right. So I think, I don't think structurally Eastern Kentucky can ever, is ever going to produce something like an Austin, right? Because there's, there's too many things. But I do think that as we think about entrepreneurship and, and, and landing that next hyper growth company, it may only, we may only need one or two to kind of then stimulate that downstream activity or that next generation of entrepreneurs that go out and whether they go, you know, uphill or downhill from that existing business, it just creates that culture and that environment that this is something that's, that's, that's possible here. And it's something that can breed more startup success. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into both of those, but I think that, um, you know, we see entrepreneurship and innovation as really important. And it's about supporting both parts of that, which are our typical mom and pop small businesses, and also creating a fertile ground for hyper growth startups to be successful here. Hmm. Yeah, I can say organizations like SOAR are doing a great job um, and other organizations as well in Eastern Kentucky. I, I benefited from it myself when I was in, in school. I, I participated, um, which I don't know if this is related to SOAR, but KY Pitch participated in that a couple of years. And that was a great experience. And then obviously the the pitch competition that I was involved with you in, where you were a judge um, for the Rubicon Rural Waste Innovation Challenge. So these these competitions really helped me to learn I learn a lot of different skills. Um, and I wouldn't have gained those skills if for not those competitions. So not only fostering a, a culture of entrepreneurship within the region, but also providing the skill set um, to college students and, and people of, of all ages to go out and um, use that in, in regardless of what they do. Taking that um, and then looking at another one of your key priorities, you'd mentioned earlier, um, broadband and connectivity. You, you touched on it a little bit right there and talking about how, you know, companies, as long as you have the internet, you are able to do a variety of things, you know, especially if you're a software company, let's say. But you have to have connection to be able to do that. And as we know, in Eastern Kentucky, there's spots where connection isn't great. I, I know that for myself from living there. How does SOAR approach broadband and connectivity in the region? And what kind of growth have you seen in this particular area? Preston, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I guess if somebody were to tell me, you know, what is the silver bullet? If there is one, I think it's the internet. Um, all the possibilities that are attached to it. There's a lot of work. I mean, just because you have an internet connection doesn't mean necessarily that everything's going to work out like it should or everything's just going to fall in place. But it's I mean, it's kind of like being in the desert with no water, right? You're, there's only so long before you just, you just can't make it. So um, we see this issue through that household that's uh, the last house in the middle of a holler in the most remote part of Pike County. We see this issue through 
that third generation, that second grader that's part of a third generation family where maybe parents and grandparents have been out of work and they've just been surviving. We, we see this issue through the, the most in need folks in Eastern Kentucky and what they need to be able to use the internet to give them access to opportunities that they wouldn't have had before. And so broadband is, is the most important priority we have because we feel like if, if there's parts and, and we, we don't feel like the job's done until, you know, every household in the region has access to a reliable, affordable, high-speed connection. Hmm. And that's a big job, but that, that's how we see it. And so, you know, we break it down in kind of a few different areas. You know, one is the physical infrastructure. And I'll be honest, you know, we're a little limited there because I, I wish I had a bucket truck. I wish I had rolls of fiber. I wish I knew how to get up there and put it on telephone line and drop it down into homes. I, I, so, you know, when we think about what our role play is in terms of the physical infrastructure, I think it's just trying to shine a light on those communities that have been looked over, that have been said it's too expensive to get to you. I'm not blaming. This is not anybody's fault, Press. I'm not blaming it. But like the reality, it is expensive. It is hard. It is challenging. But those communities, I mean, somebody shouldn't be penalized for being born into a place, right? Um, so we have to think about how do we continue to elevate and make sure that, um, you know, the, the, the industry, maybe the informal term is they've been, it's Swiss cheese, right? Like you keep building networks and then these pockets that get left out. And then as you build more and more, the, the pockets get smaller and it gets increasingly more expensive to reach with the internet. So how can we bring partners together? How can we get creative with public-private partnerships, strategic partnerships to reduce risk, share responsibility, pull capital, <clears throat> to make very capital-intensive projects work from a fiber optic standpoint. So that's a little bit about kind of our approach with the infrastructure piece of that. You know, the next two areas I would kind of group together and kind of underneath digital equity and digital inclusion. And we have an office of digital equity, but thinking about the affordability and the adaptability or the skilling assets. So, you know, we are um, a recipient of a, a Federal Communications Commission ACP outreach grant. So we, we help folks sign up for the Affordable Connectivity Program, which is a $30 a month uh, subsidy for eligible households to be able to afford the internet, which goes a long way. It's $360 a year. That gets people access. We do some different things with device distribution and skilling. So if somebody is outside the workforce uh, and they're looking for more training or for help, you know, getting a remote work job, you know, we have some resources to place around them. Um, and then, you know, something we're really excited about is just the, 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 the opportunities that remote work bring. And we, we look at remote work in a couple of different angles. We think about the idea of attracting remote workers to the region. I think that's an economic development strategy, you know, remote workers, highway earners, they bring their families with them. Um, they, they just have more disposable income. They're looking to relocate. So we should welcome them with open, open arms. But to me, the bigger, longer term play is thinking about how do we connect our own talent in parts of the state, in a part of the country that numerically speaking has less job opportunities than other places? How do we connect them to jobs created elsewhere that give them the opportunity to make a high wage without having to leave? So giving them another option, Preston. And to me, that's the exciting part. Because when you look at the data, you know, we, there's just, there's not enough jobs in our region for the people that need jobs. I mean, we've, we've looked at the numbers. Now, I'm not saying these are folks that are, you know, ready to hop into the job search and ready to be employed tomorrow. They're, these are some folks that, you know, tens of thousands that have been outside the workforce due to some specific reason. You know, did they fall outside because they're disabled? Did they fall outside because they lack a high school degree or a college degree or they have a deficient of skills? Did they fall outside because 
substance use disorder and they ended up getting a criminal record and it, it's been hard to find employment? Did they fall outside the workforce because they have children they're raising and they don't have access to childcare to be able to, to, to get back into a job? Um, did they fall outside of the workforce because housing and transportation is an issue? They, they live far out and they can't commute to a population center like Pikeville. There's a lot of these things, but it doesn't change the fact that like there's still a limited amount of domestically available jobs to be able to give them. So if we're thinking about future generations and how do we give them more options to stay, we have to be thinking about how do we use the internet to not think about just creating jobs, but just connecting already created jobs to available talent that can do those jobs, if that makes sense. And so that's the type of stuff, along with the entrepreneurship conversation that we had, that the, what the internet can do, and, and in terms of just connecting the region to a wider world and giving us a chance to put ourselves out there and talk about what makes Eastern Kentucky such a special place, why it's a great tourism destination, right? Why you should come spend time here, as you did with your friend. All that's possible when you have high-speed internet, right? Hmm. And so that's why it's number one of our list. That's why we're so passionate about it. And we're living in this unique area with all this money for broadband that like, it's kind of the golden age of broadband, right? So if we miss out on this chance, um, you know, I guess speak now, forever hold your peace, right? The time to get the job done from an accessibility standpoint is now. And uh, the next year is going to be really big for that moment. And 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 there's more work to come, but um, that that's kind of our viewpoint on it. Hmm. Yeah, one of my friends, um, different different friend from the one I took to Pike Bull, but this friend I've got to hold back a lot because he's always saying he's going to become a digital nomad um, because he has a remote job and he's just going to travel the world and work in a different place for like a month out of a time and then go to an, to another place. So maybe you go to Spain for one month, go to Mexico for another, go to the U.S. for another. And I was asking him, like, how, how can you do that? Because the con connectivity is going to be different everywhere you go. And he's like, well, Elon Musk has created this company, Starlink, um, where you can gain internet connection pretty much anywhere you are. And I bring that up because um, there's actually, y'all have actually invested in Starlink at SOAR. I think it was in Martin County that you had the project. It comes back to the, the problem of reaching really hard to reach homes, Preston, and in rural areas, it just gets prohibitively, it, it's just, it's cost prohibitive, right? It's just gets increasingly more expensive. And so we personally, you know, if I had a magic wand, everybody would have access to fiber internet. I mean, fiber is still king. Fiber is still the best transmission medium for, for internet. I mean, it's still the way to go. But for those areas where it just, it just isn't, it just, or it could hold up you know, you don't want to let a couple of households prevent a whole, you know, hundreds or thousands more from getting it. Like you don't want them to be the reason. I mean, this is to me the perfect place for Starlink, right? Are for those ones that this is this is better than what you have. It's more affordable. It's going to get better, and it gives you something, and it gets it gets it to you quickly. And so, in the three pilot projects that we've that we've done in Martin Bell and Clay County. Uh, through a partnership with the Kentucky Department for Public Health, which would not have happened without them, you know, we were able to look at a small subset of households, about 90, that are in some of these parts of those counties where they there really wasn't a strong existing local provider, or if there was, it was using mostly satellite internet, the old um, legacy satellite internet that, quite frankly, does not work well and is really expensive. And we were able to come in and... Um, pay for the Starlink equipment up front, get them online for a year, let them test it out, 
and, and give them the chance to get connected for the first time. And so, I mean, it was such a cool project, man. I mean, you're, you're talking about we were in communities that have had nothing. And, you know, by the 10 days it took to get the dish shipped from Southern California to Mead House Creek in Martin County to the time that they could get it, the dish out of the container and plugged into the wall. You know, they had <clears throat> pretty good internet, at, you know, inside of 15 minutes. And it just was really, really neat. So we continue to think that Starlink is a really viable option for those remote, hard to reach areas. And I think that kind of lines up with their business model. I don't, I'm not certain I'm not close. I'm half of a percentage point of what Elon Musk is, but I have to think that he would not be interested in competing in metropolitan areas where folks have a bunch of competitive choices, but rather go to rural areas where quite frankly, margins can still be pretty high, but you're competing against nothing. And I think that's going to be a, a really viable option for our hardest to reach homes. And it's only going to get better, right? Because he's still really just kind of getting it started and getting the satellites up, 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 up in the air. So been really cool projects and we've been really impressed with the technology and mo for the most part, you know, 95% of our users have been really, really, really happy with the service. The last priority I want to touch on um, for your blueprint is healthy communities um, and, and talking about health in Eastern Kentucky. I read this stat. I don't know if this is still the stat or not, but locals in Eastern Kentucky have a lifespan that's six years shorter than the average American due to diabetes, lung cancer, and various other diseases. I just want to open up this conversation to the health challenges that Eastern Kentucky faces. Yeah. Well, why do you think, is there, is there a specific reason why there's more health challenges in Eastern Kentucky? I would say that, um, you know, ultimately it probably comes back to culture and behaviors and decisions. and. Um, the reality is, is the warmth and the hospitality that fill when they're in the region, you know, we have to look at what we eat. We have to look at, at, at the activity levels. And I know that's something that, um, you know, it, it's challenging, right? It, it's not super walkable in Eastern Kentucky. I mean, we have parts, but like for the most part, people depend on getting to a car on a daily basis to get to their job or to, to run errands. I mean, they're, that's not something they can ride a bike around and, and like other places. And so because of that comes challenge, comes being more sedentary, comes with, you know, uh, eating and, and, and drinking things that, um, you know, when they're left with no, uh, no recourse, they can, they can wreak havoc, you know, on your, on, on, on your body. And so these are real issues. I mean, and again, you, you want to try to isolate each one and try to focus on fighting seven different battles, but, you know, health's a perfect example that like you can't, when you just try to isolate that, you pull with it, you know, a ton of other issues and health is connected to economic development, right? And I think some people don't, they struggle to try to say, well, you know, we want to bring jobs here. We want to bring companies. We want to create more opportunities. But one of the reasons why that's been challenging, I think, is people look at some of the health stats and they, 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 they counter that with, you know, less productive employees, potentially. They counter that with higher insurance premiums, right? Um, and, and, and that becomes, so we're thinking about getting to the root of these issues, Preston, we're thinking about the prevention aspect of, um, you know, not trying to put a bandaid on a gunshot wound, right. But trying to get people to exercise more and eat better and pass those habits down to their kids. I mean, that, that's the only way is, is all these 
millions of decisions, right? They get made on a daily basis across every household in Eastern Kentucky, getting people to make better decisions for their health. That is what's going to have the ramification that's going to lead from the micro to the macro and have a positive impact on things like type 2 diabetes, like lung cancer, like heart disease, like smoking and vaping, like obesity, right? But it, 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 it's a huge priority for us, Preston, because um, the numbers in Eastern Kentucky are, 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 are they're, they're challenging. Quite frankly, they're, they're, they're scary. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, what does any of this matter if we're living six years less than other people? I mean, nothing else matters. I mean, you should at least, you know, it, it's like that to me, you know, life and, and, and quality of life and enjoying your time here. I mean, that is the most important thing. I mean, you know, for me individually, I mean, we all have jobs, we all do different things, but really, man, we're just trying to make the most out of our days on this earth. Right. And so like, to me, it's just such a critical data point and, um, it's a big, it's a big part of what we're doing, but it's really hard. And we're really glad to have great partners with us across, an, uh, you know, multi, all of our different health initiatives. But we're trying to really think about how do we get to the root cause of these issues and think about strategies and interventions that are going to move the needle in the long term. I like that you said that, that it really comes down to, I think it's also what's available, not only the culture and the habits, but what's available in the actual city. And in Pikeville, it's a lot of fast food. Fast food's cheaper than healthy food. That's another conversation to have. Yeah, it's uh, huge. It's a it's it's a food desert. And listen, I love everything in moderation. You know, uh, I love personally. I love Arby's, man. I love some horsey sauce. So I mean, I'm not gonna you know hate in in in. Um, I don't think you were, but like everything in moderation. But that's a good point. Like it's a food desert, man. Groceries are expensive. Groceries are really expensive, and I mean, people can't buy the stuff that they need to buy if they can't afford it, right? And that's a huge. That's a huge ordeal. So I know, and I'm not, you know, my comments, you know, didn't hit on, but it's not saying people don't want to do more of those things. I, I think there are plenty of people that probably do, but they just can't. And to me, that's really sad too. Um, but food and clean food and healthy food, that's definitely an important part of this health conversation. So the last segment I want to talk about here, Colby, is the future of Eastern Kentucky kind of where you see it going. I mean, we've, we've touched on a variety of different topics. We've, we've looked at the blueprint um, for, the, for the region. But for the future, th- this could be 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, wherever you want to take this. But where do you see Eastern Kentucky going? Yeah, that's a good question, Preston. I don't know if I'm going to be able to be like Bob Ross and paint you a perfect portrait <laughs> right, right, right now. But, um, you know, I would say, you know, our vision for the next 10 years. We're actually working on that currently or kind of where we want to see, but I definitely think, you know, the internet's going to be a huge thing. You know, how have we 10 years from now, how have we leveraged this incredible tool to benefit our communities and, and our, and our people? And how have we taken advantage of the opportunities that it brings? You know, did we get people wired? Um, did we get people trained up on it? Did we give people access to it? Um, so I definitely think, you know, becoming a, a, a well-connected Eastern Kentucky, like that's going to be do or die for the future of the region is, is making sure we're minimizing connectivity gaps. And I do think that we have the talent. I mean, we're, we're supported by Appalachian Wireless. They're a great partner of ours and they're, they're network of parent companies. So I think we've got great local providers and a lot of smart people working on this, uh, including Governor Bashir and, and Congressman Rogers, who are co-principal officers of source. So I have pretty, I have pretty good faith there. Um, I think our workforce challenges, I mentioned, you know, the prime age employment gap. I think over the next 10 years, these tens of thousands of people that 
um, are sitting on the sidelines that if they were in other parts of the country probably wouldn't be, right? I think we have to continue to think about how do we get people back into the workforce and being, you know, productive members of society, because I think that's going to help our existing businesses grow and scale and attract new people here. So I think our workforce continues to have to be a priority. I think tourism, man, I think we're really well situated. I mean, I think it's easy to look at, you know, not that our peer places would be Asheville or Gatlinburg. I'm not saying we're going to be perfectly to those, but those are very popular tourist destinations that have natural assets similar to what we have in Eastern Kentucky. You know, we're probably a little more spread out, right? We're probably not as concentrated as those as those areas, but like we definitely have a lot to offer in, in terms of tourism. And there's some big tourism projects that are going on in the region, you know, one being Boone's Ridge, the Appalachian Wildlife Foundation down in, in, in Bell County that's 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 creating this just beautiful um nature preserve with you know, a great place to see elk and birds and a great restaurant. I mean I think we, we, you know, we've got this Red River Gorge project that's that's been that's been going on that we've been supportive of. So I think there's some um, some really exciting tourism developments that are continuing to elevate the the type of tourism experience, right? And quite frankly, trying to attract you know people with disposable income to to come to the region. But I think over the next ten years, how do we continue to cement Eastern Kentucky as like a premier tourist destination for outdoor enthusiasts, right? I think that's going to be a, a a big example of one. And then I think health, man. I mean, we just talked about it. But I think over the next 10 years, 10, 15, 20 years, like, are we seeing reductions in some of these indices that point to our people getting healthier, living longer, being more productive, making better decisions, right? And I think overall increasing the, the, the quality of life across the entire region. I think those are going to be some, some, some really, you know, really important conversations. So I think like if we're thinking about those things, man, like, industrial development, economic development, companies that are coming, like that stuff will take care of itself. I think if the infrastructure's there, if the workforce continues to improve, if our health's improving, if we think about how our downtowns and if we think about how like we're we're desirable places to 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 be, right? To like have other people feel the way that you feel about it, right? When you've spent your two years here, but maybe having more of that impact in a couple of days when they come see it. No, I think those are all really important part, you know, in parts of the conversation when you think about Eastern Kentucky 20 years away. And you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself, Preston, because you get overwhelmed, quite frankly. But, you know, how are we, you know, moving the needle on a on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis? How are we keeping all those, you know, priorities in focus and, and making progress? And I think if we just try to do the next right thing in front of us on a daily basis, you know, those long term outcomes will, will will take care of itself. So that's what I, that's how I would answer your question. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. And and we'll, we'll leave it at that because I think that's a great, great ending here. Uh, but Colby, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and speaking to us about Eastern Kentucky. A lot of people know it. It's got a big piece of my heart. And like I said in the beginning, I've, I've always said that I might find my way back living in Eastern Kentucky. It just had such a big impact on me. Again, thank you so much for coming. And I can't wait to share this with, with all of our listeners. Well, again, thank you for having me, Preston. It was a pleasure speaking with you and just uh, very thankful for the opportunity to come here and talk about SOAR and, and our story and um, Eastern Kentucky, right? Because they're kind of the one and the same. So thank you for having me on. <laughs>